Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Defense of Plants podcast, the official podcast of InDefenseofPlants.com. Are you enjoying the show? Well, consider supporting it because support is the only way shows like this can occur. One of the best ways to support In Defense of Plants is to become a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. Go check it out. There's a lot of great kickbacks for a tiny little bit of support each month. And as I said, it is one of the best ways to keep the show up and running. And I thank all my patrons who make the show possible. But today... We are continuing the theme of plant stress, but we're taking a different approach, and that is through the lens of plant pigments, specifically the anthocyanins. I'm sure that is a buzzword many of you have might have heard before, especially if you spent any time in human nutrition. But my guest today is Dr. Nikki Hughes, who looks at anthocyanins in plants and how they protect plants against various stressors. Dr. Hughes is really excited about this material and does a great job in explaining it. I don't want to keep you from this conversation any longer, so let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Nikki Hughes. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Nikki Hughes, welcome to the podcast. I am really excited to talk to you today, but let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Uh, I'm an associate professor of biology at High Point University, where I teach classes in botany, global change, ecology, environmental science, and evolution. And I have an undergraduate research lab that looks at adaptations of plants to environmental stress, uh, specifically adaptations that involve red pigments in leaves. And we also look at uh, cloud effects on plants in the context of climate change as well. Nice. And where did this journey really begin? I mean, were you always interested in plants and plant pigments, or is this something you kind of stumbled into throughout education, internships, that sort of thing? Oh, definitely the latter. Uh, <laughs> I was actually a music education major oh, in wow. college. And I mean, I wasn't even that good at the bassoon. I was, I was a bassoonist, <laughs> but that's the only thing I knew I was good at because I, I didn't really have a good biology class and hmm. I didn't even know I liked biology. And so I just happened to take biology as a, a gen ed requirement and fell in love with it. But even then, I didn't know I liked plants because we weren't required to really even take ecology. Um, hmm. But so I had actually in my application for my master's at Appalachian State under research interest, I wrote anything but plants. Oh. <laughs> so that shows you how far I've come. Wow. Um, but that was just because I, I didn't know anything about plants. Sure. And that's most people's perceptions. They don't move. They're they're boring. Um, and so it's only when you're introduced to them properly, I think, that you really find them interesting. Or if you can have the patience to to sit with them and spend time with them, it they grow on you. Certainly. <laughs> Quite literally sometimes. But yeah. so where where did it click for you then? I mean, how did you figure out you actually really do like plants? Well, so in my master's degree, I started out doing molecular work in a lab. And I remember looking out the window and wanting to be outside <laughs> and not liking pipetting <laughs> <laughs> and keeping track of things. Yeah. And, uh, so I was taking a, an organismal ecology class at the time with Dr. Howard Newfeld at Appalachian State. 
And uh, I loved the class. It was just about how organisms have adapted their physiologies to the, the environment. So it was animals and plants. And so um, I approached him and I was like, I really love this stuff. Could I work in your lab? And he's like, yes, but I work on plants. Uh-oh. And I was like, hmm, well, but how he uh, how he got me in was by the way he presented the research topic to me. He goes, well, I've got a project for you. There's a plant in the Appalachian Mountains that turns red in winter and nobody knows why. Ooh. I was like, huh. He's like, you could be a world expert on this plant, Galax, and why it turns red. And I was yes. like, world expert? Yes. <laughs> so that's how I started uh, on my uh, plant journey and my anthocyanin journey. Amazing. Really. I love that. And kudos, because Galax was one of my study species. So we've oh, both yeah. fallen for different aspects of this plant's lifestyle. So what were you doing to try to figure out why Galax goes from this dark, beautiful green in the summer to this broad, like burgundy level red in the winter? Well, one of the hypotheses for red pigments in leaves is that they're acting as a metabolic sunscreen that the plant can basically whip on when it's exposed to too much light. Mm. Uh, And so in cold temperatures, when photosynthesis is limited, if you have a leaf still in full sun, it's getting slammed with with photons that it's not processing and it causes free radicals. So I had read about that hypothesis in autumn leaves and in young leaves. And so it made sense that it would also apply to evergreens. So uh, we measured some different parameters for quantifying light uh, photooxidative stress in red versus green Galax leaves under different colored lights. Um, colors that anthocyanins absorb well and colors that anthocyanins don't absorb at all. And so that was um, green and red, respectively. And so the red and green leaves were stressed to the exact same degree under red light, which anthocyanins don't interfere with, but under green, which is their specialty, anthocyanins absorb green light really strongly. The red leaves are hardly stressed at all, ah. but the green leaves were um, really stressed. Excellent. That's very fun. And yeah, what a great experience, I'm sure, being able to go out and go, I'm just going to go look for Galax and measure some leaves today. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was living in my parents' cabin in Jonah's Ridge, and all my field sites were on our mountain. And Love that. Yeah. Very cool. And so here you are. You've made a career out of what is essentially you know, a suggestion uh, that set you on a really, really cool trajectory. And my question then is, as you mentioned, red pigments. Is, is, is that because of this work or is this just really where a lot of interesting things are happening in the plants? And then from that, is it, you already mentioned one pigment, are there other potential pigments that you work with that factor into red coloration in plants? Well, I, I do like getting obsessed with certain topics. <laughs> it just happens naturally. And I got obsessed with anthocyanins during my PhD. I started seeing them everywhere. <laughs> And noticing all of the different organs that they were in that nobody had ever looked at, like red leaf margins and veins, like still nobody's really talked about purple or red veins mm. um, and, you know, purple undersides of tropical plants. And there were just so many visually uh, intriguing questions out there in anth- the anthocyanin world. It was like low hanging fruit. Because I don't know why people don't know, study this stuff, but 
Um, I mean, we still don't even really know why autumn leaves turned red in the fall. Like <laughs> You would think that that's something we would understand by now, but really there's not a whole lot of uh, research done on red leaves as much as you might think there is. Sure. Yeah. And and that's why work like yours is so fascinating because it really does shine light on some glaring gaps in our understanding of the natural world. And And as you mentioned, you know, this is something that's even non-plant people will find aesthetically pleasing. There's a lot of reasons to look at a leaf and go, oh, that's very nice. And then the the more curious, biologically curious, at least among us, might start asking those questions. Why is that? What function might that have? And it is really wild to think of, again, the unknowns, even in some of the most common plants that you or I or many of the listeners can encounter in their own neighborhood. Absolutely. There's anthocyanins everywhere. Well, <laughs> only plants, actually. Oh, Okay. <laughs> actually did not know that, but (laughs) we're all learning today. Um, So anthocyanin, you did mention a couple other color variations. And and from the little bit I understand in the plant picnic world, it's not just red. Anthocyanins can manifest in a lot of different visual uh, colors for for uh, the mammals like us that can only see one (laughs) chunk of the spectrum. That's right. Depending on what other pigments are present, with the anthocyanin also, it can change the color. Oh, For example, red anthocyanins on top of chlorophyll make a deep, dark purple um, wow. or black and sweet gum, huh. for example. Uh, but the yeah, the, there are other red pigments as well, like the betalaines in the um, caryophyllales. There are several families in the, the beet group that make betalaines uh. instead of anthocyanins. Uh, and in the more basal plants, there are um, proanthocyanins. There's some like wannabe anthocyanins. They're, they hadn't yet evolved uh, until seed plants, the, the very last enzyme step. And there's red carotenoids, of course, too, like um, lycopene in tomatoes. And even some leaves, when they're stressed, will um, their chromo- their chloroplasts will turn into chromoplasts, little blobs of red carotenoids and fat. So like aloe plants, if you've ever stressed one out, they turn like an orangey color. And if you look under the microscope, instead of little green chloroplasts, there's chromoplasts. Huh. So it's a wild world when you start really t- like picking apart why plants look the way they do, at least in the color side of things. And, you know, I, it, it really starts to suggest like, okay, maybe specializing is the easier route to go sometimes when it comes to asking certain questions, because you could probably spend multiple lifetimes on each one of the compounds you just mentioned. Absolutely. And even just the forest by my school, I feel like I could retire. And I mean, I could, I have enough questions that I could ask in that forest alone about anthocyanins to keep, to fill up a career and keep me busy. I love that. So um, yeah, there's they're just everywhere. And there's so many questions, even with I'm coming now back to the evergreens that turn red in winter. And I could never find a common denominator that would link why some evergreens would turn red in winter and not others like rhododendron. Why isn't it red? Mm. Or the mountain laurel. And so in my Ph.D., I had uh, three different hypotheses that I tested um, and they were all wrong. They were all based on stress, <laughs> like thinking maybe the red leaf spe- species are more water stressed or maybe they have um, they're nitrogen limited. But everything came back like a total mixed bag. And now I'm starting to think it might be um, camouflage from mammal herbivory. Ooh, wow. 
Okay, so we've got a lot to unpack here, but I, I do want to point out something you said that I think is something everyone needs to hear is that y- you had an idea and it was wrong and that was okay. That is the scientific process in a nutshell. Okay. You go testing for it. Sometimes you're right. Sometimes you're not. Oftentimes it's somewhere in that middle gray area that no one wants to talk about in presentations at least where the it depends comes into play, but it's okay. And that's where you let the data take you for the journey. Yeah. It's a helpful attitude in life, too. Sometimes things just don't work and you just keep going. (laughs) Science has taught me usually things don't work. (laughs) You just keep going. (laughs) Far more often than not. (laughs) But that's the perseverance is what matters. So when you say anthocyanin, I mean, some people will have heard that in the health food industry. You know, that's not something that's, you know, completely foreign to those not working around plants every day. What is an anthocyanin? And, you know, of course, they manifest in different colors. But what is this compound? Is it solely a pigment or, or, you know, I don't even know if I'm asking that right. (laughs) Well, it is actually just one of probably many hundred metabolites produced in via the phenylpropanoid pathway, like built on phenylalanine as like a precursor. And all of those other flavonoids are clear. Well, most Mm. the vast majority of them are. And so really, there's just an enzyme or two difference between a molecule with pigment and without. Interesting. Um, So attachment of the sugar is what stabilizes the electrons for the for the pigment. And so I know if if it doesn't have a sugar, it's really unstable, Hmm. um, the backbone. But there can be all kinds of different sugars and sometimes metals attached to them, sometimes multiple anthocyanins, sometimes really fancy uh, decorations (laughs) um, that are unique to specific uh, taxonomic groups. Um, there's over 700 different anthocyanins. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah, they could be used as taxonomic markers. No way. Okay, so you could actually look at like conserved anthocyanin production and say these are there's a chance these are related. Yeah. Wow. So like in the orchids I study, they have a really fancy anthocyanin that you only see in orchids. Nice. That's cool. That's my new mm-hmm. favorite anthocyanin, I think. <laughs> So you've mentioned stress a lot, uh, even up to this point, and there is a link there. You mentioned free radicals, you mentioned uh, photo stress from sunlight at different times of the year. Like, what is this link then between anthocyanins and stress? Because like, I think pigments a lot of times in plants, I'm like, oh, pollinators, you know, that's what's going to happen. And then sometimes it's, you know, like you said, it could even be camouflage. So why did stress really start to factor into your investigations into the world of anthocyanin? Well, there are lots of different stresses that will make a plant vulnerable to high light. For example, if a plant is drought stressed, um, it won't be able to open its stomata um, to take up CO2. But if it's still in full sunlight in a field getting pounded by photons, it needs to hide. Mm. And so anthocyanins are a metabolic sunscreen that they can put in the vacuoles, the, the largest organelle in the cell. So it's an effective uh, sunscreen for the lower leaf cells. Wow. Um, so anyway, it could be low nitrogen stress. It could be drought stress, cold temperature stress, uh, developmental stress, like in young leaves, uh, baby leaves aren't anatomically or, uh, biochemically set up to process light. And so you'll rarely see a young leaf that's just, you know, not either doesn't have some type of protection from light, either a vertical 
leaf angle or white fuzzy hairs or red sunscreen. But there's lots of ways to stress a plant and usually highlight plus that stress makes things worse by okay. making free radicals. Okay. And so I can get my head wrapped around a pigment used as sort of a sunscreen, but free radicals. I mean, there's another that for a while there, like early aughts was like a big buzzword in the human health industry. Like what are anthocyanins doing there potentially in some species? Well, I have a, a experiment underway that I can't talk about. Okay. That's fine. I love those. Um, <laughs> we'll just have to have you back on. <laughs> all right. Let me think how I can answer this without answering it. So one way plants use anthocyanins in fruits is as like a visual signal that the fruit is ripe. Mm -hmm. So as, for example, an apple ripens, the carbohydrates, which are polymerized as starch when the apple is young, as they start to break down into simple sugars, uh, the sugars turn on the genes for the anthocyanins. So the red is like it turns on when the fruit is ripe. And it all is in concert, of course, with the seed being um, developed. But so it could be a visual signal to um, seed dispersers. But in, in terms of humans in the human diet, absolutely, anthocyanins are a miracle molecule. Um, one of my collaborators, Marianne Lila, at Plants for Human Health Institute, she's made a career out of the health benefits of anthocyanins. They're <laughs> good for your gut microbiome and or antioxidants and help prevent all kinds of cancers. And so they're really, I mean, I tell all my students, if you have the choice between a purple vegetable and a green vegetable, you know, purple lettuce or green lettuce, pick the purple one. <laughs> I think my guinea pig needs to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's cool. And yeah, I mean, it just goes to show you, like, it's not just the plant benefiting from producing them. What ends up eating them can benefit as well in many cases, although sometimes for many plants, that's counterintuitive. But, you know, however something uses your body or your organs isn't necessarily how you intended for them to work. Right. <laughs> so you mentioned color change in the leaves and that I know this is still a big area of mystery, which kind of excites me, but also is frustrating because I'm just so yeah. curious about it. But you know, I, I see that color change living in the temperate zone and I go, oh, the leaves are given up for the year. But there's a long process between complete senescence and a leaf being no longer functioning as a biological organ. And that process of, you know, functioning photosynthetic leaf, the, the drawdown has to happen. And is that where you're starting to think about the role of anthocyanin pigments in that process? Uh, right. So the oldest hypothesis for why uh, autumn leaves turn red is to to protect the nutrient translocation process somehow. And like the mechanism, we don't yet know, but mutants that can't synthesize anthocyanin drop their leaves with more nitrogen left behind. So somehow they increase nitrogen resorption efficiency. But again, the mechanism's not really known yet. So... Yeah, but in general, leaves, when they have low chlorophyll, the, the chloroplasts that are remaining are just getting slammed with photons. And so you often see anthocyanins in tissues with low chlorophyll, whether it's young leaves or the little spots around pathogen infections. Um, those are also, um, my lab has shown little islands of senescing tissue, basically. Mm. Yeah, yeah, because a lot of times you'll see these, uh, yeah, like you said, uh, I think it's a fungal, like 
uh, mm-hmm. scattershot or whatever the the horticultural term for it is is it almost does there's a moment where you're like wow that's really pretty and you're like oh no there's something wrong here yeah <laughs> So is it kind of like you're, you're concentrating some of this stuff around the area of infection or the area where the issues really are contained to protect other tissues? I mean, is that kind of plants have to do things differently, obviously, than we do. Uh, right. So we, we haven't published this yet either. We've presented it at some conferences, but um, what we've shown is in that little halo around the infection, the plant is pulling out nitrogen to get it out of the wake of this progressing pathogen. And that again, if it's a species whose autumn leaves turn red, then the spots are red. If it's a species whose autumn leaves are yellow, they tend to probably have yellow spots, Cool. for example. So that's, that's what we think is going on there right now. Um, they're not moving them. They're okay. synthesizing them in the cells themselves from scratch. Oh, so these pigments can be made at any point in the leaf, so to speak. Oh or, yeah. Okay. It's just adding an enzyme. Wow. And that process, I mean, is it, it's got to be costly, right? But to do it de novo, uh, you that's know, just though, wild it's to only me. Adding one or two enzymes to the pool uh, and every the substrates are already there. Now there is the sugar moiety, but there's actually a hypothesis that anthocyanins are helping reduce uh, sugar stress by binding up sugars um, if there's like sink stress, like sink limitations. Um, hmm. So the thing that gets me is the more you kind of get into the nuances of these interactions, it's like so few things in biology are one-to-one. Like this happens because of this and only this alone. Some things are like that, but a lot of things are sort of pleiotropic, multiple functions. And it kind of sounds like this could really make studying this stuff all the trickier because the noise and biological data is already there. And then you add the multiple functions that these sorts of things can serve in an evolutionary trajectory of a species. Right. Kevin Gould called anthocyanins nature's Swiss army knife because they just do so many helpful things. And usually when one of those things is helpful, they're all helpful. Like what leaf wouldn't want to be eaten by an herbivore and also have sunscreen on and have antioxidants. So yeah, it gets a a lot of bang for its buck with that molecule. That's cool. And so the reason I ended up finding your work in the first place is because I am obsessed with the cranefly orchid, Tipularia discolor. And across a, a, a single county, I will find so much variation. Across populations, I will find so much variation in the leaf color there. It can be solid green with like some purple hints on the underside to completely mm-hmm. purple and like spotting and all that in between. And you are one of the first and only people that I've seen really try to tackle this question, which goes back to this idea of unknowns. And so, you know, here's a species that is extremely variable across individual populations uh, for anthocyanin production and the way it's produced, let alone how it's distributed. Yeah, right. So we uh, initially, when we started studying tipularia, we thought that maybe the spots were a sign of a virus infection or something. And we did a physiological workup on green, purple, and spotted tipularia, and they were all happy and healthy. Hmm. And so then we started to realize, oh, maybe it's not a stress thing at all. Maybe it's a, you know, it's genetic for some other purpose, like herbivory deterrence. As you know, tipularia just makes one leaf for the winter. And if it loses that leaf, it inhibits reproduction for several years. Mm. Uh, Dennis Wiggum has done a lot of work on that. And so it's important to that plant to protect that leaf um, from or, uh, the main enemy in winter is not insects. Insects are, are gongs. It's cold. It's 
browsing mammals. Mm. Um, so the main herbivores of Tipularia are rodents, uh, which eat the corn. They dig up the, the root uh, and eat the corn. And uh, deer eat the leaves. Mm. And so I think that um, it's probably just a camouflage that's been selected for by herbivory. Um, especially the dark purple ones against the the brown leaf litter, and especially when you remember that you know, most uh, mammals don't see red, right? Uh, so it looks probably like a brown leaf to to these mammals. Right. We always have to think of the background selection pressures, and it wasn't humans for so long for so many of the plant species. They were around for millions of years before humans even got to this continent, and yeah. The, I the day I learned that deer really don't see a color and that's why you can wear a bright orange hunting suit and not yeah. be it just changes the way you look at the forest through the eyes of an herbivore and that to yeah. me is the most fascinating part of this camouflage but again it comes down to that variation among populations do you do you then suspect if you know you show no viral infection or no real uh impact on photosynthetic rates depending on light the next question is, is like, okay, are there more selection pressures here or there? Like how, uh, there's just so many more questions I'm guessing that come from these sorts of investigations. Yeah. I'd really would like a student to do some crosses so we can see if these, you know, follow classical Mendelian inheritance ratios. <laughs> like that would be really cool to show their alleles. Um, but until we do that, we can only call them morphotypes, not phenotypes. Mm. Okay. Um, but yeah, we've done some cafeteria style herbivory experiments in the forest where we'll have like a green, a purple and a spotted um, purple spotted plant in a line and uh, hunting cameras set up. And so last year we did a pilot study of this and really just we're getting to know the equipment and the hmm. had a, kind of a lot of things go wrong. <laughs> um, As they do. But yes, of course, that, that is a, a question that lends itself well to experimentation and I'm on it. Nice. I love that. Uh, just <laughs> so many reasons you're open door policy. You're welcome back to talk about these sorts of things <laughs> in the future. But yeah. And the other side of this is I want to remind everyone, you're talking about undergrad research. So you're really giving a lot of folks a really cool crash course in what it takes to do science. Uh, but there's also inherent challenges of that from a PI of a lab. Like you have to think of turnover. You have to think of, you know, who's doing what and, and what kind of aptitude and, and specialty or talents certain people are bringing to the table. But I, I just love like the persistence and, and just the drive to get this done. And the introduction to science for so many people like don't get it until unfortunately grad school. And then you go, oh, I actually don't like this or, hey, I love this. I wish I would have done it sooner. Yeah, I really love mentoring students in the lab and going out in the field, introducing plants to them and just being with them in the field is one of my favorite things. It is hard. There are challenges, of course, with teaching undergraduates compared to graduate students. For example, you know, you can't necessarily count on them to do a, a be able to do field work on the weekend mm. or if the sun's actually out and you can go out and take measurements, they have a class. Right. Um, so some things don't really lend themselves well to scheduling like a nine to 12 research block, especially when your research is weather dependent. And so there's a lot of slack to be pulled, um, but we get it done. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, your, your publication record is a wonderful uh, example of getting it done and doing it in such varied ways. And, and that brings up sort of the techniques involved in the science that you do, because it's one thing to go out and measure 
leaves and, and look at, you know, the pattern of spotting on a leaf. It's another thing to try to understand the pigments, what different functions and roles and how they're doing things at the cellular level or at the molecular level, what different things. So it seems like a lot of your work has to span lab work, field work and everything in between. Yes. And that is actually by design. So I made a conscious choice during my PhD about whether I wanted to be a specialist or a generalist. Like, do I want to keep going with anthocyanins or do I want to learn about other things? And so the compromise I came to is, well, I'm going to focus on anthocyanins, but ask questions at multiple structural levels and using lots of different techniques. So that um, is probably related to the the breadth you observe. That's an awesome conscious decision to make. And I'm sure (laughs) some days you go, why am I doing this to myself? But, you know, when it pays off, it pays off. And And again, I just keep circling back to these unknowns because when I bring up this idea of like you had mentioned earlier, the purple underside of some tropical leaves or even, you know, going back to the cranefly orchid, you know, a lot of ideas have been thrown out there. Some get clung onto and just repeated ad absurdum, even if there are no data to support them. Like the one I always hear is it's it's maximizing photosynthesis in a shady environment. Well, you, you have to figure out how to study that first and foremost. And then you have to do that across different species and different environments under different sort of conditions. Like I know you mentioned you're working with like water loss and clouds like that can factor into things. So the the idea of being creative to want to test this, let alone the tests you have to do to disprove a hypothesis, whew, you got to be adaptive. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, you mentioned the purple undersides. Yeah, you talk to most tropical biologists and they're like, oh, it's a reflecting red light back up into the leaf to maximize light capture. And so one of the chapters of my dissertation was testing that hypothesis where we did multiple experiments of how tissues with anthocyanins in the bottom versus without on the same leaf using variegated plants Mm. um, under red light show zero difference in photosynthesis under red light. Yeah, so... (laughs) That paper kind of threw, shot a hole in the backscatter hypothesis. And in that same study, we found that like we were looking into the sides of these leaves. This was in um, Tom Vogelman's lab at University of Vermont. And you can set leaves up such that the, you know, the upper surface is facing sideways and there's a light shining on it. And you're looking through the cross section through a microscope at chlorophyll fluorescence. And so there's like a narrow bandpass filter. So you're only looking at if there's light, it's chlorophyll fluorescence. And so we could have parts of the leaf with red undersides and parts of the leaf without it right next to each other and see visible differences when it came to green light, which is what anthocyanins absorb, like a sunscreen. And so that brought us back around to, well, maybe there being a sunscreen again, just from the, the undersides. And so that's what the, the leading hypothesis is, is that the, they're attenuating light because light, when it, it bounces all around inside of a leaf. And I've, I've done some studies that have shown it's not as effective of a sunscreen as it would be on the top, but it's hmm. better than nothing. Wow. And so what we, the reason we called it the best of both worlds hypothesis <laughs> for why tropical understory plants might have purple undersides. And that is, um, well, they, they have, they're adapted to deep shade and they depend on these. I'm coming back around. Yeah. I'm taking a back door to this answer. Enjoy so it. in the understory environment, it's very dark during most of the day and then bam, 
there's a sun fleck or a sun patch <laughs> just blasting these understory plants with full sunlight. And there's very little wind in the understory, so it's hot. And these shade plants, you know, most of them can max out photosynthetically under, you know, 100 to 300, 500 micromoles of photons from, rather than 2,000, which Ooh. is full sunlight. So okay. most C3 plants saturate around a quarter full sunlight. Wow. And so understory shade plants, it's even less. It might be like an eight full sunlight. So when they get hit with that, um, they, one, have to use as much of it as possible because over 90% of carbon gain happens during those short highlight patches. Um, but they can't all at the same time, um, you know, be ravaged by free radicals and reactive oxygen species. And so basically we think it's a dimmer during those sunflex mm. to help uh, kind of buffer light inside the leaf. Wow. So knowing that like sometimes those extremes are inevitable that, that again, genetically knowing I'm anthropomorphizing mm -hmm. here, but yeah, just having to really be adaptive for the extremes that being in this sort of environment really uh, just throws at you as a plant. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's wild to think too, like the more you kind of drill in, like here's this energy coming from our nearest star. Uh, it can hurt you. It can kill you as a plant. It can damage the internal machinery that you need in order to survive, but you also need it. You, you absolutely need it to generate the food you need to survive as well. So it's this, this balancing act, this tug of war between protection and, and, and feeding, really. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I can see why this really just cooked you and dragged you in head first. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I feel like a kid in a candy shop. So many questions. It's really fun. Yeah, yeah. And even oh. more fun to me is you look at your publication record and the amount of different plants you get to work with. I mean, Abies fraseri, uh, Tipularia, Polysticum ferns. I mean, you've worked with Silver Beach, like, or at least dabbled in this world. It seems like mm -hmm. you get to see just such a spectrum and really appreciate how different plants do things differently using similar compounds. Yeah, plants can take you places. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. And so throughout all of the investigations that you've been up to, I mean, is there, especially in Appalachia, like are, are there just plants that really stick out as like, this has taught me so much or just like, I love anytime I get to work with this species or is it any of it? Just throw it all at you. It's all well, good. Galax will always be near and dear to my heart. It was my gateway plant. Nice. First plant I ever did science on. And it's just so cute. It looks like it's smiling at you, like the pansies <laughs> in Alice in Wonderland. And I just feel like it's smiling at me. And I just feel happy when I see it. So Galax, Tipularia, also I've really gotten to know well and to really appreciate because especially when you go to like Chapel Hill and Carborough, where there's deer everywhere, <laughs> they eat everything. Yeah. And the few native species you see hanging in there is the tipularia and the Christmas ferns. Yeah. <laughs> For some reason. I don't know why the deer don't eat the ferns, but it's hanging in there. Uh, they seem kind of leathery and rough. Maybe they're, they're just like, uh, not till I'm absolutely starving. Yeah. <laughs> Dang. Those are great choices, by the way. And yeah, I've always admired Galax because you can find it in these dense, thick, really shady cove forests at lower elevations. And then on these highly exposed rock outcrops high up in the mountains, it's just everywhere in between. I, I, I just my hat is off to something that is so adaptable. 
Yeah. And stunning, by the way. Very, mm. very good looking play. Do you ever figure out, like, I? this is something that is totally off topic, and I apologize. Like, it produces that scent for a period of time as well, which is real skunky and, and, and kind of fun right. in its own way. Like, I've heard a million different reasons. I've never just taken the time to look up why. Have you ever heard anything convincing scientifically on that? Well, again, Howie Newfeld, my advisor at App State, he and his wife, Claudia, who's in the chemistry department, looked into this, um, but oh. they weren't able to isolate. Like they got, they captured so many different compounds <laughs> um, that they couldn't figure out which one it was. But um, I have a friend in Germany who has an HPLC hooked up to, it's like a sniffer nice. where you smell each peak as it comes through. So I might ask, ask her to help me. <laughs> But yeah, we don't know, but it's something in the leaves because it, you take a, a garbage bag full of Galax leaves and you smell it. You can smell that skunky smell. Okay. All right. Well, you've narrowed it down a little bit more than I ever have. So thank you for that. <laughs> but And again, like so much of this is just, there's many, many mysteries left. Sometimes there are our most familiar plants. Many times there are also the rarest weird things that we still don't know anything about. Um, but everything in between, it's just it's fun to have those mysteries to me because, you know, as a scientist, as someone who's curious, that's fodder, right? You get to just mull that over and try different things. And if you're willing to be persistent and be willing to accept things that go wrong, you've got a very fruitful career of research ahead of you. <laughs> yeah. So with that in mind, what excites you the most just over the horizon? Like, what are some of the bigger questions that are, uh, you know, you're going to leave this conversation today and be mulling over in your head? Well, the ones related to anthocyanins are the, it's, it's related to the herbivory. I mean, I'm actually in an ant anthocyanin hiatus of some sorts oh. right now. Um, I've been working for the past few years on a review with my PhD advisor, Bill Smith at Wake Forest, um, on the connection between clouds, climate change, and plants, and how climate change is altering global cloud patterns mm. and then layering that over the ecosystems that are going to be affected and what types of ecophysiological stress we can expect to see. So I've been thinking a lot about climate change and cloud patterns, not necessarily anthocyanins. This is what happens when you work in a lab, um, <laughs> you know, during your PhD. Like there were some guys were doing the cloud tree line stuff. I was doing anthocyanins, but you know, I end up dabbling in some of their stuff too. Sure. So. Very cool though. And I mean, so there, stress seems to be a common thread that unites you and your colleagues. So why are plants getting stressed? And that's, as we're learning in the last few episodes of this podcast, vitally important to the health of this planet, especially us. Right. And also our crops. I'm really surprised more research isn't done on um, especially the the benefits of anthocyanins to deterring herbivory by crop pests. Mm. Um, you know, we know insects don't like red leaves. They Most of them see them as brown. Hmm. Again, I'm giving away some of my ideas, but <laughs> we have this whole organic farming with anthocyanins solution nice. uh, scenario in my mind laid yeah. out. But, All right, we'll let you keep some secrets close to yeah, you for the right, time being until you have you. a chance to flesh them out. But uh, Dr. Hughes, <laughs> this has been a fascinating dive into one one realm of plant pigmentation. Obviously, it's a much bigger world. Uh, just the red pigments themselves, as you outlined, is a much bigger world. But you're asking some incredible questions and getting some really interesting results. And I really thank you for taking the time to talk with us about it. Well, thank you for taking the time to read my anthocyanin papers. Of course. And if people want to find out more about your work, where do you recommend they go looking? 
You could uh, go to my lab webpage or Google Scholar. I will put up links to those to save everyone the trouble of writing them down while they're showering, driving, or whatever other distraction you're doing. But uh, again, Dr. Hughes, thank you so much for your time, and we really appreciate it. You are welcome back on at any time to talk about continue work, so please keep in touch. Well, thank you, Matt, and I love what you do with this podcast. It's great. Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, in the meantime, hang in there and keep it up. All right. (laughs) Bye. Bye. All right. Wasn't that fun? How cool are anthocyanins and plant pigments in general? But I mean, an entire career can be built off of looking at the role of anthocyanins in the leaves, let alone all the other tissues and all the other functions they might play. I thank Dr. Hughes for taking time out of her busy schedule to talk with us. And as always, go check the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com because that's where I put all of the relevant links to allow you to learn more. While you're over there, look at all the great ways to support the show. As I mentioned at the beginning, you can become a patron or you can pick up a copy of my book, some of our customizable merch and stickers. All of those links are in the show notes as well. But that is it for this week. I thank you all for listening. Make sure you hit that subscribe button and keep checking back in. But until next time, hang in there, stay healthy and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.